Welcome to the Todd Z Zcast, everybody. My name is Todd Zalkins, recorded live here in Long Beach, California, where we talk about a little bit of everything, a little bit of recovery, a little bit of this, that, and the other. Some things relevant and highly irrelevant. We're here to share with you what's really going on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Z-Man podcast. I'm your host, Todd Zalkins. Today, I've got Dr. Louise Stanger here with me. We're out of her home out at Indian Wells, California. Today is what, November 28th? Yes. November 28th, 2018. And I'm going to read a little bit about Luis in just a second here. By the way, this here is Teddy, and that is Coco, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to hang out with Teddy here for a second. Today's podcast is brought to you by Roots Through Recovery, one of the finest treatment centers in Long Beach. And I've uh, done a lot of work with them. You can reach them at area code 562-473. I just lost Teddy. 562-473. <laughs> 0827 Roots Through Recovery. Give them a call if you guys need some help. I'll pick up this bio in just a second. Program is also brought to you by the Noel Family Foundation. We are going to be the very first treatment center of its kind, which is dedicated to helping out musicians who are suffering with substance use disorder, opiate addiction, and stuff like that. Support us, please, by going to the Noel Family Foundation.org. And uh, so we're down one, we're down one dog. We got one still on Louise's lap. <laughs> And uh, since Teddy ruined the bio thing, I got to grab this. Excuse me really quick. <laughs> Do you oh, need boy. some help? <laughs> John, can I get a hand for it? Pardon me for the interruption. Can you grab that for me? And I want to bring on our guest. It's a perfect day out here in the desert, 77 degrees. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with one of my very favorites in the treatment field, Dr. Louise Stanger. She is a preeminent interventionist and thought leader in the behavioral health and addiction treatment industry. She has performed thousands of family interventions in the U.S. and abroad. She gives presentations around the country on various uh, topics related to mental health and addiction, process disorders, chronic pain, and has received prestigious awards from her fellow industry colleagues for her dedication to intervention and recovery. In addition to her work with clients and families, she is a former university uh, faculty at San Diego State, as well as USD, that's the University of San Diego, where she brought in over $4 million in grants for substance abuse and alcohol training, training and education. Boy, this is, it's tough, that. man. That's, that's, this bio is rich because I've just it's, been around a long time, yeah. and that's all. <laughs> Dr. Stanger is lauded for developing the invitational inter, in, uh, intervention process, which uses CIS, Collective Intervention Strategies, a revolutionary way of working with professionals and support systems to invite change. She's also written a couple of books that we're gonna be talking about. Uh, her work has been featured in the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, Recovery Campus, Journal of Alcohol Studies, Recovery View, Sober Way, Sober World, and a heck of a lot more, I know that, it's a heck of a lot more than that. Her book, Falling Up, a memoir of renewal in which Dr. Stanger recounts her uh, Travels growing up in a substance travails 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 gosh travails, travails. haven't heard that one but I, I I know it now of growing up in a substance abuse family and forging her unique uh, career path it's available on Amazon this is falling up and learn to thrive an intervention guidebook this was just released is also available on her website we'll begin we'll begin uh, getting into uh, these texts in just a few minutes. So her new book, The Definitive Guide to Addiction Interventions, A Collective Strategy, is the first academic book in the U.S. about the intervention process. <sighs> I, I think I need to be schooled by you, for sure. Oh, well, I think that you have been schooled, Todd. I know you for a long time. And I'm so honored that you came here from Long Beach today. And I so enjoyed seeing you the other day out here in the desert and just really learning about how you are a true inspirer changing the world and in your own special way so thank you well thank you so much and thank you for uh, for having myself and my producer and partner mike meeker here at your beautiful home out in the desert and i've been looking forward to this for the last <laughs> few weeks you just came out with with your new book and i want to touch base on that in a second but you know you've been You've been doing intervention work. I call that stuff really the front lines mm -hmm. of this of this disease. And you've been doing it for a long time. How long have you been doing intervention? Oh, my God. So the story, if I can try and make it short, was I was a young professor at San Diego State. And let me put it in the context of time. 
it was in the 80s and actually um, Minnesota was seen as the kingpin or queenpin uh, of recovery, Hazleton. And this was a time when Betty Ford was just starting. And this was a time when Vern Johnson, who was real, probably the real granddaddy of I'll Quit Tomorrow, was doing it. And at that time, the laws changed. And people who were social workers, marriage and family counselors, psychologists, they needed to have an academic course in substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And in those days, we really didn't know exactly what to do, but we would bring in outside people. And with the help of another friend, one day into my classroom came a gentleman, tall and stately like you. He, um, I'll never forget him. He was wearing a, a gray suit. And when he spoke, your heart stopped. His name was a gentleman by the name of Frank Picard. He was a pastor because he had that voice, that booming voice, but he was also best friends with Vern Johnson. However, the caveat was he wrote a book called Family Intervention, which nobody seems to remember in the history books that was produced by Hazelden Publishing. And at that time, he was the director of Springbrook in Oregon. Well, when he spoke, my heart stopped. He was it grabbed you. Just it being grabbed in his presence. me. And he was describing my family. And I don't have a clue about what my students were doing in that class, except I knew I could do this work. And as luck would have it, that is how I learned to do interventions under the tutelage of Dr. Picard, who, uh, who was groundbreaking long before there were ever anybody saying they had a particular process or model. Thanks for thanks for that background on on how you fell in love with the work and um, one of the things that it it's fairly common that I hear and I want to ask you is what is your response when people say do interventions work? Oh my God, absolutely, <laughs> positively, interventions or invitations to change do work. I know there is um, I know in my own case about ninety six percent of all the people eventually go to treatment. That being said, I don't know an interventionist in the world that will guarantee that your loved one will go to treatment. Yeah, I think for those who do that, they're they're not. First off, they're not living in the real world, are they? No. And uh, who are we to absolutely guarantee? I I like I've been doing interventions for a little over ten years, yeah. and that's about my ratio is about nine. If I cut it across the board, it's over ninety percent. But there are some that are just either too. Too crazy. Mm -hmm. There could be a, a, an issue. Well, it's just not, too, too they're much not, emotion. They're, they're not ready. They're not ready. But but you know, on the ones, let me ask you this: on the ones that that haven't gone, and obviously you've done so many of these. There's really not all that many that haven't gone. Can you give? What, what, what did the situation look like? Because for me, it was someone literally ho holding themselves up in a bathroom, and the police had to be called, or one jumped out of a window. For real. I think I think there's people that have had extreme mental health that you've really needed to attach a different way. There have been people that have waited and not gone that day, but maybe six months down the road will go to treatment. Um, I think there's also, I think that nothing changes till something changes. And 96% of all intervention work is done with whoever the payers are, families, mm -hmm. business managers. And if they suddenly backtrack, and they suddenly sabotage, yeah. it is very, very difficult to move someone to invite them to change. So, so I love what you just said. It's so critical that everyone remain a united front during the process. Mm -hmm. Caving in, backpedaling, you know, a weak link finally starts to give up or becomes emotionally charged, we've lost, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was doing something really early on, I was very excited and um, I was really excited that it was a young man who was a Formula One race car driver, but he was doing cocaine and he was driving at 180 miles an hour. And actually the person- Eight balls and driving Formula yeah, eight, Ones? Yeah, eight balls. So My you can kind imagine, of driver. <laughs> so you can imagine how dangerous this was. Oh, sure. And the person that contacted me was a therapist plus his fiance. And we gathered people together, but the payer was his dad. And, and his dad and a um, like Tide or Clorox or somebody else was backing him. And I'll never forget this because I was very young 
in the field and very young doing it and we were meeting in a therapist's office and you know um, we talked about it and I had really got gathered the troops with the exception of dad and dad said you know I'm not he's got a race and somewhere in the courage of my mind and I was young and I didn't collect money up front and I didn't really know how I was going to get paid I said to dad I said you know what I want to invite you to leave right now because you're obviously not going to help him. Mm. And so he looked and all the family looked around me like, I cannot believe you asked. You made the call. I made the call. Yeah. And I told him he had to leave. Yeah. And, and that was probably the best thing I ever did. Mm -hmm. And I was scared. And because this kid could not drive a car. He might kill himself or someone else. Yeah, isn't... Um... You know, I, I look at intervention as it, it's it's a it's the management of a crisis, but often a chess match of emotion too, mm -hmm. and and weeding out people who should be present versus who should absolutely not be. That that takes careful consideration, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I think Plato talks about thoughtful consideration, wise deliberation, and I think when you do your due diligence in preparing for this invitation. Um, you need to understand the dynamics of who are the players right and are they going to be helpful or are they going to hinder and have the courage if they aren't going to be helpful and then also have the courage to ask who ask for an outlier in my experience it's always someone that's sort of outside the mainstream family that is really good in inviting someone to change and the family wants to keep everything a secret. Mm -hmm. And so you got to search for that outlier too. Right. The longest intervention that I ever had was in Denver, Colorado. And from start to finish, it was nine hours. What was the longest one that you've ever had? Mm, from I'm a start to finish perspective where the person finally is, you know, you've broken down the resistance or denial. You're able to finally get he or she to go. What was your experience with the longest well, I don't think I ever stayed nine hours in one spot. I wanted to die. I, I because I think that there has to be. We have to hit pause. We did and come back. Louise, we did. We yeah, took I mean, breaks throughout this thing, and I'm telling. And but we were not willing to give up. Well, I think you can always get to yeah. yes. So I'm trying to think if I went over nine hours. I don't. I, I don't Louise, honestly it's a, know. It's a very special case. But, <laughs> but that would be a very special case. But I think the idea is that um, I. My one friend who's an interventionist always used this expression. Eskimos have a thousand words for snow. We uh, interventionists hear a thousand words for no. Mm -hmm. And yes, the plane doesn't leave till two o'clock, so we have plenty of time for you to pack. I like that. I like that. And I, yeah, and so I've been using yes a lot instead of no. What do you say? And I've heard this a bunch, but have you heard when? You know, when someone is contemplating, <coughs> the, the individual, the sufferer, the one who has the, whether it's alcoholism mm. or drug addiction, these days it's substance use disorder. Yeah. Um, when someone is, is saying something like, well, I, I, I just can't stay sober forever. There's just no, there's just no way. Don't you just want them to essentially, essentially just give it a try? Right. We just want you to try. Yeah. I'm not. I, all we want to do is be in the now. Right. And and our job is is interventionists are really to help them get to a water like a watering trough, mm -hmm. get them into treatment, and then our job in for doing case management is to give them a good biopsychosocial to work with them. But our also our other job is to help all those participants stay out of the way so they can yeah. rise to their best possible self. And so I don't think that, you know, you're going to end up rewriting your story and you get to write, rise stronger. And yeah. I can't tell you how long you're going to go or mm -hmm. what you're going to do, but I, guess, but I guess you might be able to have perspective of how this is working for you versus how the other way was working. Yeah. And, and it seems to me that you were, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, not being faithful, ending up in bed with someone you didn't know, writing bad checks to, for mom and dad, and stealing. So I don't know. Which one do you want to do? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the one seems to be, the one, the one avenue is awfully dark and the other one's light. And if someone is, you know, it's hard to attract someone to, to a better life when the, when the disease owns them 100%. Would you agree? Yes. 
And I, this is such a, you know, they talk about being cunning and baffling. And it's, I, I think that addiction is an attachment disease. And it, it has to do with brain attachment. That we are ta- neurotags, people, places, things, thoughts, feelings, and actions. I want more. And even though that more doesn't make us feel better, I still want more. And so we have to retrain our brains to be able to do this. So I love in the 12 steps, they talk about show up, suit up and show up Mm -hmm. because everything I'm going to do is very, very foreign to me. And I maintain that suit up and show up is the same thing for families because families are used to paying for the phone. They're used to bailing out. They're used to running. They're used to yelling. They're used to screaming. And none of that's worked. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, the, the fractured family, you know, we, this is, Mm -hmm. this is referred to as a family disease because everyone is affected. Everyone is spiritually sick, Mm -hmm. emotionally sick, right? What is, um, you know, when an individual accepts, accepts help, what do you suggest that the family do once the end, you know, because the family is far from fixed. You know how often they think, oh, God, thank God, you know, Johnny's going to go, we're going to be fine. So so I'm pretty clear that I'm not going to work with anyone unless the family agrees to work with me. Um, and so that's part of my sort of contract that we, and I come into family, families don't, I think families, and I teach them this, they unconsciously, they don't set out to do this. They unconsciously put that loved one in a sick role and everybody looks better or faster or anything. So once that person gets health and wellness, they can no longer cast them in that role. And at the same time, they have to begin to take a look at their behaviors. Mm-hmm. How was I healthy? Or maybe I drink a bottle of wine every day. You think I got a problem? Um, so one has to work, but I think the way to enter into families, and I'm a licensed clinician, is really in a more psychoeducational coaching manner. Mm-hmm. Families don't want to hear, and I develop family programs, they don't want to hear that they're getting therapy. Sorry. All what my clinician friends, they want to hear that they want to learn because their hearts are hurting. Yeah. Um, I had one mother I'll never forget. She cried so hard that her eyes would be shut. She'd have to go to an ophthalmologist. And she would go, <gasps> like that. And I go, how's that working for you? It doesn't change anything your son is doing. And so to get her, and I think a way into story is by me, and and obviously I I feel I'm an expert in doing the family mapping, which is a way into learning everybody's story. Mm -hmm. And then beginning to transpose. So when I work with families, in the beginning they want to hear, how's Johnny doing, how's Sally doing? But that's not really what I'm there to talk to them about. I'm asking them, what are they doing to change themselves physically, emotionally, and consistent with their values? And by doing their family map, I guess I learn about them and some of their stumbling blocks and to help them work through that. Is, is one of the best moments for you, if you want to call it the payoff, when, when the intervention is successful and the individual has agreed to go, don't you, don't you love the, the moment where the whole family exhales? I love that, but I'll tell you a moment I like better. Tell me. I can remember, um, maybe it's because I'm going to Long Beach and this is a true story. I remember a very resistant young man who yelled and screamed and called every profanity as he ran around an apartment building across the street from a police that station. sounds like me. And wouldn't go to treatment. And he was very, and his parents were furious at me. They thought I was just not doing a good job. And we, we got him to treatment and he left treatment. He had, he, he, but he kept going back to the same treatment center. And he, the last, when I saw him go off to treatment, I breathed a sigh of relief in a litany, a sea of profanity. And he was really, really angry with me. And then about a year and a half ago, I was at the holiday party for this treatment center. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing in line to get the Mexican food or the tacos, and there's a tap on my back. Well, I turn around, and it is this person. The last time I saw him, he was not exactly happy with me. Yeah. And I jumped. You know, I'm short, so I jumped up high. I go, ah, what do you really want? <laughs> ah. And he said, I need to make amends. 
Oh. I had tears. That was more happy yeah. to me than the day that he went to treatment. Sure. Very reluctantly. But there is this sigh of relief like, oh my God, there's hope and there's possibility and there's a solution. And for me, you know, whether it's an executive, whether it's a celebrity, whether it's a, a 19-year-old kid or a mom who hasn't been taking care of their kids, when families feel hope. No doubt about it. And, you know, it's it's... I can't speak for you, but I know for me, it's impossible to track outcomes. It's it's just one of those things we get caught up with other work down the road. We're hope, I, I don't know how you track, but I, I, I wanted to, to, to share this with you and tell me what your thought is. When someone does go into a decent, you know, a, a level of care for which they can mm -hmm. get well if they have some willingness, but having been exposed to treatment and the person may not get sober then, I've had a bunch where it's like, I'll get calls from parents going, you know what, uh, Billy didn't do it the first time around, but you know what, after having been exposed to it, 60 days later or six months later, he went back and he's doing really good now. Mm -hmm. But it was like the, the seed was planted. Does that make sense? The yeah. first time around? So, so, so it depends. Some people don't get whatever it is and some families don't get it either. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the identified loved one that you call you know, your patient. But I think that I've always had a small concierge type of practice so I can track that I'm not a big mm -hmm. you know I'm not doing three interventions a week um, oh so my. I can oh. so I mean uh, people say they I'd are. be a Betty Ford some, myself some, some, I know some people say <laughs> they're so busy I really believe in giving that intimate concierge service so I can go back and and sort of call up and say how's someone doing sure. or how are they not doing and um that's and so I, I do do my own tracking, but I was once a researcher. But it, you know, it's all qualitative, yeah. And the other thing is a little bit of triangulation of data because the um, people that were hired me, the payers, you ask them what they're doing differently. You know, I, I know, I know for certain that uh, that you are one of the finest interventionists around, and meaning you're a very good one. What makes a bad interventionist oh my god I, I i think when you think that you can do absolutely anything for everybody mm -hmm. and that when your ego runs riot um i i you know when you prom over promise and under deliver yeah. um when you say see i think it takes skill to work with families i i think it takes sensitivity and i'm not the right fit for every family yeah just like and I'm I, not either, by the way. You know, but I'm willing to give them away to somebody else. Or I'm willing to say, hey, this is not, you know, I, I'm not a great fit. But I think that in today's day and age, and I know this sounds controversial because I wrote a textbook, you know, I think sometimes all the training programs that are offered, you know, it takes more than... Five days to become an interventionist oh and anoint you. Oh I think my it, I think it I think that, and I think it's more than just being in a twelve-step program. You're yeah. not just doing a twelve-step visit. You're not going there. No, it's work. It's it, work. It, it's this is real a, work. And also, you're dealing with people's lives. Right. And there's a good chance you're going to lose someone along the way. Mm -hmm. You are going to have a client that dies in this opioid epidemic. I have several. Uh, yes. Yes. And you're going to have families that you have to be accounted for. And it's not just the um, drop-off wonder. And I guess I, I feel like sometimes in this emerging profession that people are, are saying they can do too much. Or, mm -hmm. um, and, then, and they'll do it for too little. Yeah, I was I was at a conference at that big was it the LCIS thing that whatever that happens it, it, those big conferences yeah. for the people in treatment in Las Vegas a couple of years ago I met some guy mm. it wasn't important to me what his name was because I already forget but I was just making my rounds talking to some people and this guy had about a year and four months sober and, he, and he's he, doing interventionist he's, he's interventionist he's doing wearing all these hats and I asked him a couple of questions and uh, it was one of those things like. God, God help that family. 
I mean, I mean, his idea was, yeah, I, I, I just go and take them. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure that works great. Yeah, you just like what kidnap? You, you know, you, you've probably heard it all, but I just thought to myself, wow. But I do have a list, I think, on my website of what, what to look for in an interventionist. What's their background? Yeah. What's their training? Mm-hmm. You know, how many have they done? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you what is in their contract? Because not all contracts are alike. Yeah. You know, um, what are you actually getting? Um, what are you actually being delivered? Are you be- And if you're being promised an automatic yes, then no. And the other thing, Run are, the hills, are they... Right? You know, are they giving you three treatment options? And that's sometimes hard if, say, for example, a treatment center refers you a client. You want to be able to honor that, but what happens if that's not the right fit? Mm-hmm. So you have to call the treatment center. But, and then you have to be mindful of somebody's money because when we think of treatment today, I don't think of treatment in terms of 30 days. Or 45 days, because when you take a look at it, somebody has actually been using or having a problem for at least one-fourth, one-third mm-hmm. to one-half of their life. You bet. So then we want to think of how can we use these people's treatment dollars so that they're going to have an integrated community um, approach. So what do they need for detox, medical detoxification? What do they need for inpatient? And then what type of structured aftercare? So when I look, when I work with a family, I'm trying to take into account like very robust approach because people have to eventually be out on the sidewalk. They have to be out on the road. They have to be in living. And how can we support that? Yeah, and and, and that's a question that that is often posed, which is, you know, let's just say someone does 30 to 45 days worth of care and um, they expect things to be just fine when, they, when, when the individual emerges on the scene. And you and I both know it's simply not the case. So look at, they're still growing into new skin. And, right? and the new skin's uncomfortable and the family's still growing into new skin. They go, yeah. I don't know exactly what to do because no matter who you are, whenever you go home again, you sort of get put back to where you were. Um, and so that becomes sometimes challenging. What are, what are some of the, the key things that you suggest that a, that a family look out for from a red flag perspective, from a, be, from a boundary perspective, things that they should be looking out for, the, for themselves, but when their loved one does return, let's say it's within the family unit, there's, there's things that, that, that they've got to be keeping an eye out for, right? Well, I think that when I work with families, I have change agreements. So when I have a loved one come home from treatment, they have what we call, I develop a change agreement. And that is, what is that family going to do to support themselves in health and wellness? Maybe it means they're going to go to Al-Anon. Maybe it means that they're going to um, therapy. Um, because their loved one, if it's under 18, you know, obviously they're going to come back to their home. So you have to make sure there's randomized drug testing and that someone else is able to do that. Um, but I think when we look out, is ego running wild? Um, not going to meetings, starting to be argumentative, being secretive, isolating. Um, relapses that we were talking about earlier today happens long before anybody takes um, alcohol or another drug. Yeah, yeah. It occurs in little spaces. But what you don't do is micromanage someone who's home from treatment because you've got to give them the autonomy. That's why it's so important for a family member to have their own recovery plan. For those for those who are watching right now will be listening later, could you please explain for, for those who are, who are completely not in the know, what is the benefit of Al-Anon for a family member? Um, so there are, let me just preface it by saying there are over 300 self-help groups in the United States. I encourage my families to go to not only Al-Anon, but also to go to open AA meetings. Mm. Al-Anon is, and I also will bridge them. I won't send anyone to Al-Anon without teaching them what it is, without sort of doing a mock Al-Anon meeting, because actually you feel like you're entering from Oz. And hopefully that the treatment center that this person's been involved in has had an excellent family program, which is also begin to teach them. 
but this is a 12 step support group made up of peers based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and it gives voice for families. I also invite my families, sometimes they are adult children of alcoholics themselves, to experience that, to experience open AA meetings. Why? I don't want to go to an AA meeting, they say. That's, oh my goodness. And I go, no, you're going to hear hope and people being in solution. Mm. And I need families also to be in solution. That's that's a great suggestion. You know, I actually have not encouraged people to go to open AA meetings. Certainly, Al-Anon, you've just taught me something. Yeah, no, I, 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 I love personally. Are, are you going to bill me for that? No, I won't. <laughs> but personally, I love open AA meetings at this stage. I mean, I started going to Al-Anon over 35 years ago. And in there, I think I learned five magic boundary words. I teach it today. They're complete sentences. Okay. You want to learn? Is one of them no? Yes, but I only use yes now to mean no. Well, go ahead and explain. Yes, please explain to me all the no five thing things. Oh, no, yes, really, and whatever. They're complete sentences. I want a new you car. You don't want to know where my head just went when you explained that to me. Uh, yeah. I could apply that in some other areas, but yes, I like that. Yeah, and yes, I'm yes, it's correct. I'm not going to be paying for your phone. I use yes instead of no. Yeah, and I think yes in it lately in the last two or three years, instead of using no, I use the word yes. But these are powerful words to set healthy. Boundaries. It sounded to me, though, like the progression of a relationship on its way out starts with yes, no, really, and then whatever. Well, people <laughs> like most, of, most of the time when I say whatever, everybody's eyes go, oh, we could never say that. <laughs> that is just so mean. And I go, okay, so don't say it. But if you just say those words, it can make the other person angry. Sure. Because you're putting the monkey back where it belongs. Mm. You're putting it back on that person so they can make a choice. Yeah. So they can decide what they want to do. Have you, do you encounter a lot of people who, um, as you know, I personally, I am in recovery. Yes. And I still go to meetings regularly. You know why, right? I'm not fixed yet. Well, I think people <laughs> are always constantly becoming. And you just said, I just moved to the desert. Mm -hmm. And it's very lonely when you move to somewhere looking for a community. So I've been going to open AA meetings. Okay. Um, just to hear voices and to, um, and more open AA meetings than Al-Anon meetings. And like, um, because I like the sound of that. And the reason you go to a meetings, and honestly, I think meetings are great for almost anybody. And, and believe me, there's so many more, but I like step one because I'm powerless over people, places, things, thoughts, feelings, and actions, and my life has become unmanageable. I can only tell you that they're for the grace of God, go I. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe work, maybe shopping would be my addictions. I know what they would be. Um, and so I get courage. I get solutions. Right. And the only thing I don't get, which is challenging for someone who likes talk as much as me if i go to an open aa meeting i can't really share so i gotta figure out how to do that and a lot of people are coming up to me and helping me <laughs> join aa right. which and I, and I try to explain no i'm i'm oh i i love AA. you know um there's a lot of people who work in the field who are personally in recovery and you've probably heard this theme or seen it but uh, make no mistake that the work that I do is not my recovery. The work you do can't be your recovery. And make no mistake, a big trigger for relapse is you stop going to meetings because you're so busy working <laughs> that you don't have time for your own recovery. Yeah. I have heard that so much. How many? And the moment you do that, you have taken yourself out and you are in what we call relapse behavior. You, you are totally screwed, I think. Eventually, something is yes. going to happen. That time will come where your number is called. And because you're, you're working in ego. You're being omnipotent. Yeah, yeah I'm thankful that, uh, that I haven't disrespected yet what was freely given to me. Mm -hmm.
you know. Um, so yeah, there's two sides to that for sure. That the work that we do, it's work. And um, now you you travel, you've traveled even abroad to do this kind of work. And so, um, do you, t- do you today? Are you do you stay more on the West Coast? No, actually, most of my clients right now are on the East Coast. Okay, but I have consent formal travel, and I've always been a little bit um, unique in the respect that someone asked me as soon as I got here where my office is. I believe, um, as an old social worker, of meeting you where you are. Yeah. So if I needed to use an office, I'm sure I could use an office here in the desert. Um, I've used on occasion offices, but. I like to see people in their natural habitat, Mm -hmm. in the way they live, because I can honor you in that way. So I've done interventions in boardrooms, in hotel suites, in hotel boardrooms, in homes when it's been appropriate. Um, But I want to honor you. So that to me is the most important thing I can do is not only honor you, but honor whoever the the family is or the payer is or the friends are that are coming together because their hearts are hurting. Yeah, I I love that. Uh, Have you ever been scared personally during an intervention? Yes, and it was sort of a funny one. I was, um, we were, and and I always work with a teammate because I believe people get better service. And I don't talk about first or second chair, we're equal, because there's no guarantee who this person's gonna relate better to. Yeah. So I'm, I'm that. But I remember when I was first starting out, and this was in San Diego, we were doing an intervention on a young man who was as big as you, I know, you must think, I, but he was really big, and he had long yellow hair, and he looked sort of wild, and he was a meth addict. Mm-hmm. And earlier that week, I had just been where I lived in La Jolla in Bird Rock, and there was a meth addict trying to break into a cookie store. And he was very violent, back and forth. And I was wondering, and, and the family had said that this person sometimes tried to punch you know, um, things in, walls in, and everything. Um, and I was, I was worried. P.S. It was probably the easiest intervention I ever did. Mm-hmm. We said, do you want to go to treatment? He was in a very pleasant place. He said yes, and that was it. Um, I did you. I do sometimes use security yeah. when I did an intervention, and it wasn't that I was scared. It was annoying. the The young man was so disrespectful mm. to his parents, but he had a history of anger. He, when he was a little kid, he took a sliding glass door and broke it. Just threw something and broke it. And he was living in this very high-end apartment, and he was um, hitting, punching the walls in. Um, he owned a liquor store or a convenience store. He threw all the bottles on there. So in that case, I worked with a security company okay. called Black Box Security. They're mm-hmm. all ex-Israeli Secret Service. Okay, I love them to death. Um, because I wasn't going to do that alone. And I, yeah. in the assessment, I said, look, you know, he's sort of out of control. And either I'm going to call mm-hmm. 911, yeah. <coughs> which I've done during an intervention. Have you ever had to 5150 someone? Yes. During an, and uh, explain what the 5150 is. So 5150 is. is when you think someone is not oriented to date or time and they are theoretically a harm to themselves or others. We were doing an intervention on a very nice gentleman who would, I, they must all be tall or I must be just remembering all the tall ones when I look at you. I'm sorry about that. That's Is that a fun. bad thing? No, but it's really <laughs> funny. I'm just thinking like, I do women, but every time I look at you, I come up with this other story. <laughs> so this guy was extremely intoxicated and he went into a bedroom, a closet, and he proceeded to lock, he proceeded to fall down Locked the door, and I, we invited him to come out, and he said, and he had a gun, which we didn't know inside there. And we said, you know, he said, I'm not coming out. I'm going to do something. And I said, well, um, let me tell you how I'm going to call 911. And I said, can you come out, or I'm calling 911. Mm. And so we called 911, and he was, you know, he, he came out. 
and he was so I, ha I think if you have someone you have to because I'm a licensed clinician it's a little bit different I have to tell people up front that I have duty to warn by law so by yeah. law so mm -hmm. I cannot you know some if you don't have duty to warn and you're an interventionist you don't do that but I'm I, my first is I'm a licensed clinician, so I always tell people that I have duty to warn if there's elder abuse, sub, you know, child abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in my history of my life, I have only four times in my life referred to child protect family services, mm -hmm. and they were really warranted. Um, and I have only you know done fifty one fifties when they were really warranted because I'm not quick on the draw with that. Okay. Yeah, I, I had an instance just once where, where the 5150 ultimately led to the individual going into a, a next level of care. Well, and it was very crazy and scary. I, I did have a colleague on hand sometimes. You know, it's our job. It's, it's our job to kind of keep things here, to keep the peace as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And if an individual is, is prone or is going either prone to violence or going to be violent, it's nice to, like you were saying, to have someone else there in the mm -hmm. event, because I've only had a handful where yeah. it got really bad. Well, the other reason I like to have another person there, truthfully, is the event has a life of its own. But let's say your wonderful, our wonderful client we're working on together says yes, okay? Well, that means you get to take them to treatment. But I have all these people here mm -hmm who are now reeling right. and I need to be able to be a one to process with them what they're experiencing. So we just don't leave them like they had a dinner party yeah. and now I'm so happy and we're going to go do that Two, I want to let them know what their next steps are. You know, how do you write a letter to a postcard to a treatment center? <laughs> you, um, how do you, you know, how do you respond? And three, I want to set up, a team phone call with them, which they can call into weekly or not call into weekly, so we can get them changing their behaviors. And four, I want to give them homework assignments. So I'm very. Man, she's hands on. Yeah. You are absolutely hands on. And speaking of hands on, you know, you've written a couple of books. Okay. Yes. The, the first was, it's called Falling Up, so, a memoir of renewal. Can you explain? Uh, I'm going to show the book here to the my uh, my buddy's going to show the uh, cover. Of this, by the way, how, how do you get falling up? Um, I just because people fall down and they can always rise. No, 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 no. How do we get the book? Oh, how do you get the book? <laughs> how, how, how do we score a copy? Oh, all you have to do is go to Amazon. It's very inexpensive. It costs fifteen dollars on Amazon, and it can be yours. It's got a you know Claudia Black, uh, Claudia Brown. Um, there's a lot of good reviews on it and people say it's an easy read. Like you sit down and you just go through it. The reason I did that was a lot of people, I've written a lot of academic things and people ask me to write about family and I was really struggling with that and I thought, you know what, I'm going to write and when you get to be 69, you can write your own memoir. So I wrote Falling Up and it's laced in between so it's nonlinear. And it tells the story of my life, but it also tells you about family. And it also tells you about some of the things that you can do and how you can fall up and rise to your best possible self. So, so this, is, this is a great read then for people who, for families who, who are dealing with uh, someone who's suffering, mm -hmm. right? Someone who is either in the disease or in recovery, et cetera. It's called Falling Up. And just so you know, Louise is charging me triple because I had two pounds of fresh fruit that she served me. No. So I, I got to run a credit card before I get out of here. No, absolutely not. Okay. Todd, that is so untrue. That is not true. I'm just trying to make her laugh for a second. I, I'm a little bit upset because the dogs are gone. Okay, I love those dogs. Uh, you're recent. I, I'm really curious about this. This is so, so cool. It's the Definitive Guide to Addiction Interventions, a Collective Strategy. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because there's a lot of stuff in here I can tell. Yeah, so... Um, and by the way, but really quick, before you jump into it, okay. this is not like, hey, family, buy this book and do your own intervention. No, this book is absolutely not for you to go out and say, I can go do an intervention by myself. I can do it. 
Do I think that every family might want to have this book? Absolutely. Is it going to be your how-to book on how to do interventions? <laughs> no. Um, Thank you. I have been, as you know, a teacher um, a lot of my years. And Rutledge, which is a large textbook house, it provides textbooks for colleges and universities all across the country, came to me because there's never been a textbook before written about intervention. There have been books written mm -hmm. about intervention, and they all say that they are models. Well, in order to be a model, you have to have a large-scale research project. What they are are strategies mm -hmm. or theories. So what I did was I tried to pay homage to all the different people that actually wrote a book, not all the people that say they have it, and talked about the history of intervention, but then I also talk about the invitational model, how I actually do things and how I believe that interventions are, in essence, an invitation to change. And every day we are inviting our loved ones to change, sometimes in hospitals, sometimes by legal, which can be really helpful. And this book gives a really good way of how you do that using some sorts of clinical clinical methodologies. How does, because there, there are several models for intervention that are out there and, and um you know, with regards to the invitational, is that, do you hang your hat on that 100%? And if so, you don't. Okay, no, please. so wait a minute. So there are no models. So I'm going to correct you. Okay. There are strategies and processes because everybody uses that word incorrectly. Because there's a Johnson model, for instance. That's yeah, how I was but, first but, that, but, but the thing is, a model has to be evidence-based and have large research back. Okay. I mean, okay. I held $5 million worth of NIH and NIAAA grants. No intervention process. I like that strategy. Has that. So that's why I call them collective strategies. Okay. So there are theories and one of the theories is surprise. And in that there's not just Johnson. Ed Storty is mm -hmm. a genius in the way he approaches it. His authentic model. He says that what we need to do is surprise the identified loved one, surprise the IP. And, and he can really gather a family within 10 minutes. Um, and so we, we're going to use that. And the, no, the, the major philosophical thing is it's going to be a surprise. Nobody knows we're coming. Hey, hi there, Michael. Guess who I am? I'm your friendly interventionist. And, you know, and... <laughs> I mean, that's exactly. I don't and, identify that And by that the way, way, I have done those. And <laughs> I mean, you've done them, even if you believe in an invitational model. I remember one time. Can I digress for a second? Tell you a funny can digress story? all you want. Well, this is um, your house. We were, we were, um, we were doing this intervention, and it was a female who had been a nurse, and she was an IV drug user. And her parents were very sweet, very nervous. They were school teachers. And we coached them on how to make an invitation. Well, we got there, and there was no invitation given. In fact, she was locked in the bathroom shooting up. She didn't get the end memo. Of the inner, end of it. <laughs> At that point in time, you know, it wasn't, we really were very unsuccessful that day. The only thing we were successful with is the family lived way out somewhere in San Diego County. It was Hotch. She was extremely emaciated. I mean, mm. really, really thin from, as you can imagine, the hair and loose. And she, it was hot day, and she called her drug dealer. She had to walk down this huge hill and in their refrigerator, in their freezer, were all these popsicles. And she packed it in a grocery bag, and we watched them melt. And my teammate and I just looked at ourselves what? and went, well, this one's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> no. And, um, you know, there were some nice things said back and forth to me and to my teammate. But, and we ended up, like a week later, two weeks later, going to her home, her apartment. But so, but sometimes the surprise might be appropriate when people, yeah. sometimes families will say, you have to surprise them, you have to surprise them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you have to. I just like the idea of, you know what, when I work with families, I say, say they hired me to intervene on you. 
I say, you can tell that you can tell Todd right away. Hey, you know what? Our family's got a problem. I started working with Dr. Louise. Mm-hmm. And we're going to find a solution to the problem because it is a family problem. But no, I'm if, not going to give Okay, okay, hang on. But what if Todd just goes, you know what? Yeah, thanks for the invite. I'll, I'll be in Vegas, by the way, on the 13th floor for the next six months. Good luck on getting. Do you lose so, people that way? I'm curious. I've never lost people that way, but maybe I end up on Vegas on the 13th floor because you know why okay. people, the reason you don't lose people, Todd, is people have ego. And if I say I'm going to be talking about you, uh-huh. you want to know what I got to say. So sooner or later, you're going to show up. Like, for example, um, there's the surprise model. There's an invitational model, Judith Landau, Brad Lamb. They certainly have been pioneers in the family. If you look at Judith Landau, Landau's model, the Arise model, she tries to get the family together three times, and then when that doesn't work, it reverts back to the surprise model Mm -hmm. but i you know and so the idea is to be somewhat respectful and the idea is also to say hey you know what we're going to have a family meeting and we're going to have a we're going to find a solution to this so 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 sometimes you'll switch it up based upon the situation there's a number of ways that you you will approach you have to you have to there's an old strategy by the way not the model yeah (laughs) you have to what i've learned in my lifetime as a social worker is you've got to start where your client is not where your strategy or your model is. The moment you get stuck in your model, you're not being real. And by the way, if we looked at one another or families looked at us in seven seconds, seven seconds, that family decided whether they like you or not. Mm. That identified loved ones. Is that why nobody hires me anymore? No, I'm sure you get hired I'm, a lot. I'm, I'm, Maybe that's that my was a, problem. That was that's a my problem. <laughs> but that in seven yeah, seconds, no, you right. decided yeah. if you could work with me. And yeah. in an intervention, I try and be as quiet as a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Or maybe some people see me as a tarantula. Because I've already coached everybody. They do all yeah, the work. That's right. That's and right. I'm always lower. Um, I always sit lower than the identified loved one. Yeah, so 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 for those listening and watching, you know, it uh, uh, it really is the the bulk of the work is the pre-intervention. Mm-hmm. It's really there's a, so much work that's done pre-intervention yeah. and really getting it. I mean, I use a research methodology called portraiture, but um, to 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 see it, I I draw family maps. I do all kinds of different things, but it doesn't take that long to do. But I do like to interview people individually. That's sort of my style. But that, As opposed to the group, you mean? Because yeah, that can be... T- so yeah, okay. I interview before I ever put anybody in a group. I interview everyone individually or my teammate and I. Mm-hmm. So say you're working with me. And it's basically, you know, tell me about yourself. I want to learn a little bit about mm-hmm. you. Tell me what's special. It's heart, hurt, and hope. Tell me what's special about Johnny, Sally. Mm-hmm. Tell me why your heart is hurting. And mm-hmm. I want it in actual behavioral parts. And what is your hope? In the meantime, if it's a family member, I'm doing a family map as well. I'm going to learn about all the family. I'm going to learn if there was suicide. I'm going to learn if there was sudden death. I'm going to learn if there was multiple affairs. I'm going to learn if there's alcohol or drug. Because I want that information. Yeah. And so I'm getting this very robust picture But I like interviewing participants individually first. The reason is I'm going to get so much more honesty because you're just talking to me than if I put you in a group. Yeah, it's that that front end work is is really the bulk of it. A lot Mm -hmm. of hours are spent uh, with family, whether it's one-on-one and group. Mm -hmm. A tremendous amount of preparation is involved Mm -hmm. prior to D-Day, right? And, and, you know, there is another strategy, which is they haven't written about, which I think they need to do, which is action intervention, which like gene, which is a lot of sociometry and um, psychodrama. And they'll bring families in for a weekend to do an intensive before they ever do an intervention. And, and so that's a whole different school of, of thought. Yeah. But the idea is we are always inviting someone to change. And when someone calls you, 
their heart, they're not calling you because they're happy. Their heart's hurting. They're desperate. And they're also calling you because if they call the treatment center, the treatment center couldn't close. Yeah, I often, I often will say, you know, not in a joking <coughs> way, but try to put it like, I know you're, I know you're not calling me because things are going great. Yeah, Let's, and I, you know and I, I mean? always compliment someone. Say, it takes such courage, absolutely, to call a stranger. Thank you. Thank you. It's like, thank you so much for, and yes. for calling me. And I'm so glad that you just said that. It's That's such courage. Critical. So many families are on eggshells and will never even take that step to even try to get the process going. I love that you just said that. Thank you for having the courage to even try to make to try to make this happen on behalf of of your loved one. Um, they need to be built up too because they're broken. They're broken. I mean, I remember one we didn't get. You know, there's there's those intervention clients that you never book. But they were calling me from their car. They were so scared. Mm. And they had rented out um, a house to their daughter and her drug dealer. And they're calling me from a car. Highly educated people, mm. afraid. Yeah. And to get them, you know, I never would. I hope someone was able to book them. I wasn't able to book them. Or yesterday, I got a phone call. It's a 62-year-old husband whose wife, he said, doesn't have an addiction problem. No. But has a stash of prescription pills. Oh, okay. Maybe mental health. And very what we call pre-contemplative. And saying, how can I help you? I'd love to work with you. I'd love just to meet you. And instead... I have to talk with the psychiatrist. Maybe it's not as bad. So oh, gosh. you have to intervene. Yeah. Your first intervention is on that family member. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up. I, obviously, I can't speak for your experience, but I know of dozens of. It is clear that there is that there there is a fatal illness going on in the in, in within the family, and yet someone will find a reason to not go forward with doing what they all first wanted to do. Yeah. Often, and, often with fatal consequences. Yeah. And you go like, how's that really working for you? <laughs> yeah. And, um, <clears throat> so, you know, you know, or you'll get someone really interested and they go, Oh, I have to talk to everybody else. I go, well, I'm happy to talk to everybody else. But you know, so it's, it really is getting through to those people who are your first callers, um, and being, and allowing them for hope and possibility. Um, <clears throat> If someone wants to get the, def the definitive guide to addiction interventions, a collective strategy, where would they get this? Well, you can get it one of two places. I believe you can get it for 20% off by going to my website. What's your website? Oh, um, you can Google my name, Louise Stanger. That's Stanger, not Stranger, S-T-A-N-G-E-R, at www.allaboutinterventions.com. Or you can also get it off of Amazon as well. And off of Rutledge site as well. So it's available multiple places. Do you feel that you and I get along? I do. You know, and it's so funny, Todd. How many years ago is it since we made, we met? It, it's been about 11 or 12 years. Yes. And I'm so excited to be reconnected with you. You have such a warm and, and caring way about you and the things you're doing. You know, you're a true inspirer. I, I appreciate that and, and, and I very, very much. And it's a pleasure to be in your home. And I, I wanted to ask, you know, if we get along okay, because um, can I take one of your dogs home with me? No. Are you sure? Yes, you cannot take one of my dogs home with me. You yeah. see how you try to twist things around? I Just when we're getting along. Really? Stop it with the logic. That's, uh, you're being highly, so I can't have one of the dogs. How about for a weekend? If I'm going away, I think that really? would be wonderful. I dig those dogs, man. You could definitely I, I really come in. <laughs> I love it because we're always looking for great sitters. I love the so desert. So let's make I, a deal. Absolutely. You stay here. Anytime. And, um, Anytime. I dig those dogs. Well, then they're, they're so much have, fun. So there definitely is an opportunity. You see, I, Mike and I drive out to the desert. We get to spend time with one of the most prolific interventionists in history, hanging out, having a great time, and I get to babysit two dogs maybe a couple times a year. I would love that because I can guarantee that they would be 
taken good care of and if they needed an intervention it would get done 100 percent. i think it would be awesome teddy Pup, and Coco puppy treat intervention thing. extended walks and a lot of love for sure well i would love that <laughs> it, it has been such a pleasure <laughs> to do this with you today and i i i hope that for anyone who is out there watching and listening if you need to score these books please please visit uh dr louise stanger's website it is once again Oh, www.allaboutintervention.com. But I will tell you that if you want to talk, I am my own personal assistant. So you can pick up the phone and you can call me at 619-507-1699. So I'm happy to address your questions, your concerns. And together, I know there is always a hope and there's always a solution. And if you're out there listening, she is absolutely as good as it gets. And I've been working in this, in this field for a little while now. And it's just an honor. It's a real honor to be here with you today. And I admire you so much. Thank you so much for welcoming us here. And it's just been a joy. Oh, well, thank you. And you are a joy. So just keep doing what you're doing because you do it so well. And just keep inspiring others. And obviously, keep following up. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you kindly. Can, can I get a hug? Of course. I want a hug. Now we're allowed to get up. Oh, my God. Oh. Thank, uh, thank you guys for tuning in today. I'm going to give Louise a hug and get out of her hair. Thank you guys for tuning Thank in. Thank you so much. Have a great much. rest of your day, everybody. Thank you.